previously on Chingona. I'm Callie. Um, I'm 21. I recently graduated college. I just felt so conspicuously like queer and like of color. It was hard. <laughs> it was not somewhere I wanted to be and I felt like I didn't belong. Um, and I had a lot of experiences that confirmed that I didn't belong either. At CU, the like queer scene and the like campus, like um, LGBTQ community was like the one place where I felt like I could actually relax. My drag name is Romeo Face. I'm so for like everybody trying dressing up as the opposite gender yeah. or a different gender um, because like it can be so interesting because you feel really different. And I think behind drag is really a very serious message about. Um, how we think about gender and how we force people into these very rigid uh, boxes and how you perform gender. You, you can be something completely separate from drag. So like drag is something that you do, it's not necessarily like who you are. Mm -hmm. I think a while ago I sort of reached this like sort of conclusion that I'm like, I'm a woman for all intents and purposes. <laughs> and. Um, non-binary in a lot of other ways in my life. For me, pronouns are not that important, um, but I totally respect when they are important to other people and other members right. of the queer community because it really matters for a lot of people. People get like all in a tizzy about people who have identities that are outside the like cisgendered woman and cisgendered man. Right. Um, it's just like, what are you so afraid of? Like, what's your problem? Like, we're, we're not freaking out. <laughs> like, we're only freaking out if we're being violent or like scaring us or like doing things that are like stripping us of our rights or things like that. But literally just us existing is not a threat to you. We're continuing our story about Callie Pierce. So if you haven't listened to the previous episode, you may want to go back. Callie recently graduated with her degree in linguistics in Mandarin Chinese from the University of Colorado Boulder. She's a queer person of color, an amateur drag king, and a lover of language. In the last episode, we talked about how feeling othered in college led her to the drag king community. She talked about her gender identity and her identity as a woman of color. In this episode, she'll talk about how linguistics intersects with her interest in social awareness how she came to study Mandarin, and what it was like living as a queer, multiracial woman in a monoracial country. I'm Leah. This is Chingona, a podcast about women and queers and non-binaries who inspire with their heart and their hustle. Um, yeah, I pretty much love everything about language. Um, I think in fifth grade is when I was like, I'm going to be a linguist, like not really knowing what that was. Um, but I was just, you know, how you like go through phases where you're like, I'm going to be this thing. Um, and then it actually turned out to be like true. <laughs> um, I just like my favorite parts of language, even though I love every aspect of it really is historical linguistics. So a lot about studying like the um, history of how language changes, um, <laughs> where words come from, where they're... Um, whether they're indigenous to the language or if they're introduced at some point, if there's speculation of that. I love all of that. Um, and then I also love phonetics, mm -hmm. which is all about speech production um, and the various articulators yeah. that you use <laughs> to speak. Um, and uh, I also love like morphology, um, which is basically how words are made and syntax is like how words are put together. Mm -hmm. um, and 
Um, and it definitely intersects with my like interests in social justice and social awareness. Um, I'm really interested in accents and people who learn languages as second languages. Yes. Yeah. Um, and if they get treated differently and how, and how it shows up in their speech. Hello, Siri. Goodbye. <laughs> I think, though, like, the weird things about, like, some of the weird truths of linguistics are all languages are equally complex. They have some, some facet in which they are overly complicated and, oh, yeah. <laughs> and like, do something weird. Because yeah. that's just, I mean, it's human-made, so it's going to be imperfect. Yeah. So even though it's very mathematical and complex in a lot of other ways, there's just times where it's like, but why do you say it like this? So wouldn't it make more sense to say it like yeah. this? And like, that's just how we do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's how it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the beauty, I think, of language, too, is that you can make anything expressible. So, like, even though you might not have a particular word for something, there's a way to describe it. There's a way to, like, arrive at the same thing. Um, and that's a really big deal, actually, because, like, a lot of linguists, especially those who were old colonial white men, yeah, who were, like, the primitive languages of right? Western <laughs> Africa. And I'm like, that's not... Like, every language is extremely complex and can express absolutely anything. Do you feel like, because, because I feel like every week on Twitter there's like a new slang term yeah. that we're learning, do you feel like now with social media there's like a hyper turnover for like new mm. words and language in general? Um, I mean, that's like a difficult question. I would say like, probably not actually. Mm. Um, language pre-writing and languages that are not written actually change way faster, mm-hmm. um, which is kind of non-intuitive to some people because they think of writing as a development of language. Um, it's not. <laughs> it's an, an incident that can happen to some languages if it makes sense in the communities that they're in, mm-hmm. but most languages are not written. Um, and as a result, there's no imposition of like, this is correct from writing mm-hmm. onto language. And so writing actually really slows language change um, but in terms of like when it's not written, you don't have this like standard looming over your head. So like mm-hmm. parents and children can like revamp things or change things super fast. Um, and so I think with the internet, we it's so young that we really don't know kind of like if it's actually affecting language change that fast. Um, it does feel that way because it feels like there's so many like internet terms and like language that we really only use on the internet. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like it's hard to say really if that's like true change in the way that it's been traditionally defined. Mm. Um, but yeah, like it would seem that way that it's moving really fast, but I'm just not sure that it's actually as fast as it did pre-writing mm. um, because that was like really, really quick. Yeah. <laughs> it was generation to generation. It was different. Um, so I'm fascinated by that because like you can have an entire conversation now in GIFs. This is Karen. She helped out with one of Callie's interviews. You also heard her in part one of Callie's story. And we kind of use that as a shorthand. Like, we'll just be like, pajama boy face. Like, yeah. and you know what it means. Or I, I would say, like, before pajama boy face, and when The Office was really popular, I was like, Jim to the camera face. Because he yeah. makes, like, a very pronounced yeah. frown that I can't do. <laughs> and so I would just say it. Yeah. Um, and so, like, yeah, it, like... It's fascinating that there's an idea, and in order to communicate it, like you t- you could write out like mm-hmm. 
You know that feeling when someone says something and you look at the person like, oh, come on, that's not really, like, that would be crazy. Or you could just say, like, um, is that GIF where the guy in the hat, like, turns to camera and sticks his lips out? Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's always weird also explaining it when it's not in the format. Yeah. Internet. Um, like a tweet or something where it's, like, text, like, image or GIF or something like that. Um, yeah, like... That's the thing, too, is, like, a lot of linguists, um, I don't know if this is, like, super true, this is kind of my opinion, at least my experience, are not taking the, like, internet revolution too seriously in terms of language. They're mm-hmm. kind of like, emojis will never replace language, bleh, bleh. And I'm like, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, they'll never replace, because they're not a language in itself. It's just going to be, like, used, <laughs> used in a creative like, so, way. So they're like... I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that we will never use exclusively emojis to communicate. And everybody's like, no one was... <laughs> no one was saying that. <laughs> yeah, that's honestly what it's like. Yeah. Um, but, like, yeah, there's... It's so new that there's, like, not a lot of, like, major linguists on the scene who are, like, really investigating it. But there has been, like, some, like, theories developed about, like, what emojis seem to be doing in... Um, and also, like... Uh, internet language is very different because it's influenced by written language and you use it with your eyes you still, like use it with your eyes but um, at the same time it's really pulled in the direction of speaking there's a lot of slang mm-hmm. and there's like especially on Tumblr there's like a Tumblr dialect and you like don't use punctuation right or it's like very like dramatic or punctuation like, uh, vowels <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah and like intentional mistyping yeah um, and like keyboard smash and like things like that that are like this is not, you can't speak it. You also can't really read it in a way that we've traditionally read in mm-hmm. right. language. Um, but you like, it just means something. It's more like iconic, like you see it. It's just like an, an image. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is just like a really fascinating thing because it is actually as, I think, major a development of language as writing was. Yeah. And I feel like that's kind of like the next great medium of language just does not happen often <laughs> you know if the last one was writing that's how long ago it was um but i think it's just it's so different from speaking and uh writing which are the two like kind of things we think of as speech production mm-hmm. like when you see it it's just like what do you call this this is like internet language i guess but, <laughs> yeah it's so different from both of those things and yet influenced by both i saw um, I was on RuPaul Drag Race Reddit last night mm-hmm. to read all the reactions to the RuPaul Drag Race episode, <laughs> and there was a tweet that made me laugh so hard, and then I read it to my husband because it was written in the cadence that RuPaul, like it's so specific, it's, yeah. it was written in the cadence that RuPaul uses to eliminate people, which is taken from the cadence that Tyra used to eliminate people on America's Next Top Model, yep. but more with more puns added in. <laughs> And so I read it to my husband, but he's not either an ANTM or an RPDR fan. Yeah. Yeah. And so he was just like, why are you saying it that way? <laughs> yeah. And he was like, I don't get it. Like, it's funny, I guess, on the certain... So it was just something like, like, Donald Trump, you have us Russian to, to go away. Or yeah. You are up for incarceration. <laughs> I'm sorry, my dear, but you are up for incarceration. Yeah. funny to me yeah oh my God. but like I read it and I read it like that like Donald 
you have us Russian. And <laughs> my husband Jeff was like, what are you, are you doing William Shatner? <laughs> I caught up with Callie a few months after our initial interview to see how the post-grad life was treating her. She's currently working for a local TV network, trying to figure out what she wants to do with her linguistics and Mandarin Chinese degree. And so what, what is it that you can do with your degrees? I don't think I actually know what... Yeah. Linguist. Um, so, like, a lot of linguists become researchers or professors, mm-hmm. which makes sense. Um, and then there's also a fair number that become translators or do some some sort of thing with, like, um, cross-cultural communication. Because governments and, um, I don't know, corporations need stuff like that. Mm. Um, so, you don't have to be a linguist to be a translator, but a lot of translators have a linguistics background. That okay. makes sense. Yeah. It's like a squares, rectangle kind of thing. (laughs) Um, So that's like one option. And then there's a huge field that's booming right now for um, people who do computational linguistics. So just as linguistics relates to computers. Um, So they'll work on Siri or they'll work on Alexa or um, apps Mm. trying to understand natural language. Um, and that's a huge thing right now. That's because, interesting. Yeah. Um, it's not my field or my like interest, <laughs> but it's like, it's really cool for people to do that. Um, and there's definitely a lot of career opportunities there. Um, so yeah, that's kind of like some of the main stuff that linguists tend to do. Um, but there's also a lot of people who become authors or writers of some sort. Um, yeah, just people who love words and love language. There's a lot of ways you can apply it. Um, but yeah, those are kind of like the main main things that you could do. But so what do you want to do? I would love to just study, especially sound, but um, really any part of language I love. Um, and there's something called sociophonetics, <laughs> fancy <Okay>. term, <laughs> which is like kind of my main interest. Um, so sociolinguistics is just language as it relates to as a social practice mm-hmm. um, and looking at it through a specifically like socio um socioeconomic sort of way or sociological way mm-hmm. um so like dialects that are racialized for example is something that sociolinguists would study mm. um so things like that are really interesting to me um and phonetics is about the very like precise um uh, parts of speech and sound that make one thing different from another so like <clears throat> um let's say like you're taking the sound s- some people say like s- up here, like really close to their teeth. And other people might be like, sss, sss, it's lower. Sss, sss. And so you could study stuff like that and see why do some people say it differently and doesn't mean anything. Um, and one thing that people have come up with is with that particular sound, um, you know, when people try to sound gay or some people just sound gay, mm-hmm. it's because they have these really front um, S sounds. Um, and they found that so a lot of gay men use them to signify like we're all gay men (laughs) like it's a way of like you know saying our identity in a way yeah um which is really neat and i love studying stuff like that because it's just like all these tiny little things that you do um can be really important and like who who is a member of your identity your community Mm -hmm. um, and how all those things are kind of navigated um so yeah like sociophonetics (laughs) is kind of fascinating yeah it's kind of the takeaway of like what i would definitely be really into studying 
Um, and then beyond that, I don't know if I'd want to be a professor. I think I'd like research more, but mm-hmm. um, I don't know. It's hard to become an academic <laughs> in any field. You <laughs> kind of have to take whatever's there, you know? Yeah. So, this, so. This might be a stupid question, but are... No stupid question. <laughs> <laughs> are there a lot of linguists in the world? <laughs> <laughs> How common are we? Um... It's not as common as like econ or poli sci or something that's kind of more like you could apply it immediately to something in life. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think sometimes people think of it that way. It's a soft science. Um, so that's another thing too. People don't know it's a science. Mm. <laughs> it is a science. <laughs> you have to do like the scientific method and um, all things like that. Um, especially if you're someone who wants to do phonetics or something like that, you will mathematically analyze, you know, things that are related to, you'd you'd graph it and things like that. So, um, yeah, um, I don't know. It's kind of like the linguistics department, at least at CU is fairly sizable. Um, and there's a lot of crossover in people who are speech language pathologists. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's probably more common because it's kind of a medical field. Um, so helping people with stutters or, um, uh, people who just have like some sort of speech impediment that they're Mm -hmm. trying to, um, resolve things like that. Um, but yeah, a majority of people who have a linguistics background are going to be translators or at least bilinguals of some sort. So I, am doing an episode, um, with a woman that actually went to see you and she's a black physicist and oh. her line of study or what she did her thesis on or I don't know the correct terminology was um the identity of being a black physicist and mm-hmm. kind of like imposter syndrome and mm-hmm. the culture that comes with being a physicist is generally like straight white man yeah. or like Asian man mm-hmm. um was like I didn't realize that there was like a like a specific culture within physicists, but I guess it makes perfect sense because with any community, there's a culture that you have. Yeah, right. Is it similar like among linguists? Like, is there a linguist culture? Do you feel othered as like a woman of color within the linguist culture? Mm-hmm. Is it a little bit more accepting? So, that's really interesting. Um, I have thought about this before. Linguistics now is much more accepting. I think it's probably one of the most accepting soft science communities out there or science communities out there because you're studying human language and you have to study people who may speak under-resourced or understudied languages um, who are largely going to be indigenous or um, other like ethnic minorities or things like that. Um, and also language is an equalizer. And that's just scientifically true. And knowing that, being a part of a community that knows that, <laughs> means that there's less of that kind of like bias and cultural things kind of getting in the way. Um, and I don't think, I, I think very highly of linguists because they go and study these, you know, let's say hunter-gatherer communities in Indonesia or something. Um, and they're there seeing them as humans with a perfectly complex and organized and beautiful like system of language. They see it as equal to their own, because it is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All languages are equal to each other. Um, and so even though they may have totally different lives and economically, quote unquote, come from you know, a developed society versus an undeveloped one, whatever, um, like 
they go in with that mindset of we're equal in this capacity. Um, and so you see them as human beings with complex language before anything else. Um, and that was like a huge pull for me because I didn't feel like this sort of alienated woman of color as I have in many other <laughs> ways in my life. And yeah, but definitely it took a while to get there and we, there's still work to do. There's still a lot of people who go in with kind of this savior complex or like this primitive language kind of complex, <laughs> like, you know, idea, which is just false. Um, but yeah, there's just like, and historically linguistics was very much one of those fields that was like, how come every other language is not as good as Latin? <laughs> it was sort of like had its beginnings in that. Mm -hmm. So it was just white men going places and being like, Look at how these, like, it's the missing link between apes and humans, and they speak this this weird language that we don't understand. And I'm just like, you're an idiot. <laughs> like, <laughs> they just have a different culture and a different, a different language. Um, mm -hmm. But there's no such thing as a, like, half-baked language or, like, something that's, like, lower-tiered or less developed or something. Um, and it, we had to dismantle that, like, as a community. Um, but now I see it, like... Pretty much every linguist I've met, I, I trust with that. Because it was kind of like the 60s and the 70s where we started to get out of that mindset of like thinking that, you know, writing, for example, was an, is, a, is an example of advancement in a language. That's not true. <laughs> if other languages don't have one, and most languages don't have a writing system, it's because there wasn't any economic impetus or any reason really to have one. Um, and so that was a big myth to debunk because people were like, oh, it's not even written. Like, and that means it's like, you know, kind of a lesser. Inferior. Yeah. Um, and that's not facts. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, kind of what you're originally saying, like, there is already this, like, much more inclusive um, ideology behind the study of linguistics because it has to be. Your subjects are going to be all kinds of people. Um, and there's a ton of, like, interest, um, especially in, in women, um, inclusivity, inclusivity in women um, in that research. <clears throat> and I just think that like it's done wonders, not just for the world, but also just for the sci like, science at large. Um, because in some ways, I think we've kind of set the example of like, we're studying something for humanity and we're studying human beings and we're interested in whatever they bring to the table, no matter who they are. Um, so yeah, I, I think very highly of linguistics in that regard. Um, and I think it's definitely one of the less alienating of the, any of the sciences. That's good to hear. <laughs> At the very least, that community is <laughs> inclusive yeah. and welcoming. Increasingly inclusive, yeah. Callie also majored in Mandarin Chinese while at CU Boulder. Her interest in the language began when she was 12, and a Chinese boy on a television show caught her eye. She figured she needed to learn Mandarin to be able to communicate with her future husband, i.e. the boy on the show. Callie's since given up on her dream of marrying said boy, but her love for the language never wavered. And about two years ago, she seized the opportunity to study abroad in China. I learned a lot about myself and my own identity. Um, and it was weird because when you're abroad or when you're somewhere where you're foreign, you start to like question all of those things. And it kind of gave me like a new awareness to people in my own country who are foreign or feel foreign or made to feel foreign. Mm. Um, because 
that like otherness was so strong when I was there and it could be really painful at times and other times it could be kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. Cause you're different. Um, but yeah, it can be really exhausting too to just be foreign or feel foreign. Um, so yeah, it, it definitely amped up the respect I already had <laughs> for people in my country who are dealing with that issue. It's like I kind of grew up already in this space that had words for me and had words for what I am and where I come from. And in China, there's, no, there, there's nothing like that. I mean, it's a monoracial country. Um, there are different ethnicities, but they don't have the same kind of identity politics that we do. Um, and there's not really this sense of individualism in Chinese culture. It's, it's all about community. Um, whereas in the West, we tend to be very like, I'm about you know, who, what I'm doing as a person um, and things like that. And it's sort of a simplification, but, um, and so that was a really big difference to like go somewhere and I'm just foreign, like I'm just reduced to that, like I'm not any of these other things. Um, yeah, and I struggled a lot with it because I was questioning some like really fundamental stuff. Like there was a time where I felt kind of like, and I go through periods of this, um, where it's, it's not dysphoria, but it's like, I don't want the body that I have. Mm-hmm. And so like I'll wear a sports bra or like and kind of androgynous clothes and I just feel more comfortable that way. I just sometimes have days where I'm like I'd rather I'd rather be like this. Um, and drag is one way that I can express that. Um, and I, one of those days came around when I was in China and I was just like I'd just rather like wear this and like wore a backwards cap and like a flannel and um, and it just felt like more right in that moment and I just made that choice. Um, but. I remember like looking in the mirror being like, am I a boy? I just like genuinely wondered if like, if I'm actually a man. And I don't feel that way now, but it's like, it's something that has been on my mind kind of since then. And ever since I started doing drag. Um, And I don't know, cause like just being in that particular environment, something about it like made me more analytical of myself and just curious about like what was going on under the surface um and I was curious about that with everyone around me um and what I was seeing every day and kind of taking it all in um in some ways it was hard and not in the ways that I expected it to be I realized how much like comfort and pride I took in having these identifiers and these terms where I could go you know in the U.S. and like look a certain way and be like that's a woman of color and like that's a term that we have Mm -hmm. um but to be somewhere else and it's like all of that is gone and you're just a foreign woman. <laughs> um, it was just really like disorienting in a way I hadn't thought. Um, so I don't know, it was, it was a mix. It was a mix of a lot of feelings. Um, there wasn't anything that was like seriously upsetting, um, but it was just like, hmm, like I don't know, I just kind of think, think about these things in a different way. Um, what city were you in again? I was in um, Chengdu, which is in the southwest part of China. Um, it's in, actually, the province it's in is Sichuan, and Sichuan chicken, which you can order from a restaurant. Yes. Um, Delicious. Yeah, so good. The food. <laughs> oh! I didn't even talk about the food. It's so good. Everything is fresh. Like, a guy might just be making noodles, like, <laughs> at his little noodle shop, and then you have, like, a hot soup and noodles, and it's just like, oh! and it's, like, so fresh. It's so good. Um... But yeah, that's where I was. Um, It was really like getting to people watch and the food (laughs) that were so interesting. And like, I really enjoyed 
Um, Because I feel like I just learned a lot about sort of these commonalities of the human experience in a way. Um, Maybe it sounds a little poetic, but (laughs) it was just cool to be somewhere and be like, I do that too. Or like, I would do the same thing uh, from these people who you don't share a culture or a language with, really. Um, It was just really, it was really powerful, I think, in that way. Can you give an example of something like that? Um... Just like finding the same stuff funny. I feel like humor is so powerful because a lot of it is just like common. Everyone (laughs) finds the same stuff funny generally. Um, But yeah, like (laughs) there was like one point we went to some sort of ceremony for something. What was it for? Oh, it was the like yoga festival. Um, And they had this little mascot, (laughs) which was like a big panda. And the mask was such that you couldn't really, like, see downward. (laughs) So the person wearing it had to, like, waddle down the steps very awkwardly, like, (laughs) trying to, like, (laughs) trying to, like, get down the steps in the dark in this, like, like, ceremony that was going on. It was really funny because they kind of had their arms, like, a little, like, I don't know, kangaroo or something. Yeah. So they were, like, trying to look down. And I was just giggling. And then this guy next to me, just, like, some random like young Chinese guy we had never spoken to each other <laughs> and we both just like saw it at the same time and just started laughing because <laughs> it was just funny it was just like this little like face as he was trying to go down um and it was just like stuff like that it was like even though we probably wouldn't be able to say a word to each other like I don't know you just find the same thing you notice the same thing and you can communicate in this way without a language mm-hmm. um and I just thought that was really really cool um yeah and just seeing people like smiling and laughing at the same thing um it's very like heartening (laughs) yeah but but so are you fluent in mandarin no (laughs) so i'm proficient um i would say and the problem was you learn kind of like international mandarin when you study it in Mm -hmm. an american school or a european school so you go to China, and there's a dialect. <laughs> um. And then you're like, oh, no. And they don't mean just an accent. They mean, like, it's a dialect. It's really different. Um, so if I had to talk to locals or anyone who was older than 40, um, the chances of kind of getting by with my Mandarin were not great, mm. um, just because of that dialectal barrier. There's also a really strong accent. Um, and so even though I came with all this Chinese and was like, I speak it, blah, blah, blah. I would like try to like go in the world and I'm like, oh, I barely understand anything. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's kind of just the, the nature of the beast. Uh, and so what what's the the update on the drag kingdomery? <laughs> kingdomery. <laughs> oh, I'd love to study that linguistically. <laughs> um, <laughs> it has not really launched, <laughs> to be honest. Um, I mean, the last, really, I get kind of, like, nervous about calling myself a drag king because I'm like, am I really? I've only performed twice. Um, But I've heard from other people in the drag world being like, if you've done it, you get to say that you've done it and that you're a drag, whatever, drag king, drag royal, or something like that. Mm. Um, But, yeah, I, there's some clubs and there's some things, like, going around and, like, I'd really have to, like, put myself out there and kind of make connections with the right people, which is not something I'm good at. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I've tried it a little bit, dipped my toe, um, by going to, like, clubs that I know drag troops are at, drag king troops, um, and just sort of scoping it out. But, uh, I don't know. Like, I just, I'm really nervous about, like, trying to find the right person and being like, 
let me perform? Because <laughs> like, it's like, how do you, I don't know. Like, and all the drag advice I read online is like for drag queens and like, it can be kind of different. Yeah. Um, and so, I don't know, I just, I kind of met a standstill with it just because I don't really know what to do with it. But I know that I love to dance and I love to perform. And I mean, if I had, if I found the opportunity, if I forced my way into the opportunity, <laughs> I would definitely do it. Um, so yeah, it's kind of me being chicken and, then, <laughs> and also tired. <laughs> I have a lot going on, <laughs> but yeah, definitely personal like fear and like hesitation. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's still very much an interest and something I want to do. <laughs> Just haven't found the right way or shape of doing it yet. So d does it, do you have to perform to be, to be considered a drag king or if it's something that you do like in the privacy of your own, like you like to do the makeup and the clothes mm -hmm. and trying to get better at it, mm -hmm. do you have to perform in a public space for you to be considered a drag king? I think that's a really good question. I personally would say no, cause I'm always just like, whatever you want to call yourself is your right. Mm -hmm. and. You don't need to perform anything. I mean, <laughs> a lot of how we like form and like, I don't know, maintain our relationships by performing, you know, certain behaviors and certain actions and things like that. But I don't think that needs to be applied to something like drag. I just feel like drag, it is something that you, anyone can do no matter what their gender identity and you can dress up as anything. Um, and it's for whatever reason you do it for is just like your business and you get to call it drag because it's still drag. <laughs> um, I just know that I personally want to perform. Like mm -hmm. that's just one of the things I want to do. Um, and in a traditional sense, yeah, a lot of like drag performers, they're performers. <laughs> um, some people have also said that like going to work and like putting on this like specific face <laughs> of what you are is drag. <laughs> um, and I'm like, yeah, it's very like performative inherently. Um, so as long as it has that performance aspect, whether it's public or not, I think that that gets to be called drag. Hmm. That, that's my opinion. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's a, a good way of thinking it. I think it definitely, I think is more inclusive that mm -hmm. way. In that way, there's also no pressure to make it something for someone else. I think you need to do drag for yourself. Um, and if other people are involved, great. <laughs> that's fun. Mm -hmm. But... Um, if fundamentally anything that you do, any hobby or any career, it needs to be enjoyed because you enjoy it, um, or you find a way to make it livable. <laughs> um, but yeah, I feel like with drag, it's just like, it's pure fun, and it's just something you want to do for fun. A big thank you to Callie for sitting down with me. Since these interviews, Callie has moved on to working at 211 Help Center at Mile High United Way. It's a call center for non-emergency human services. And she's not really big on social media, so if you want to get in touch with her for any reason, you can email me at chingonapodcast at gmail.com and I will pass any messages along to her. The Chingona theme was written and performed by my uncle Raul Garza Jr., all other music will be linked in the show notes. Follow the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at Chingona Podcast. All episodes are streaming on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Tell all your friends, and I'll talk to you all soon. Next time on Chingona. I would say I don't know. I didn't know I was black till I came here. I didn't know what that meant. I'd say that all the time because it's truly how it feels. So when I got here, I was interested in just the 
specifically like um how can I do performance in physics you know I've always been a performance artist my whole life and arguably I've always been a scientist I just didn't know it um mm-hmm. and that's kind of how I came into my grad program but then I was feeling like really 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 very 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 heavily how my blackness was impacting my life and it was for the first time ever this is a bigger problem than I could have ever thought of and conceptualized and it kind of charged me up because I was angry the racial identity parts of my work came up in that same semester I was taking that class I wanted it to be something that I could be proud of and that was or and that was trying to make things better for black physicists like me. 